Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat. So why don't you get them to join you and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, letters to new believers facing various problems. But the most notable was that their view of the end times was leading them to treat work and income far too casually. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in chapter 2, having finished chapter 1 in the previous segment. We continue here with an additional look into what's been called Paul's pastoral heart, how much he loves shepherds and pastors, his people. And it's combined here with him answering various critics who are trying to discredit him. From Paul's response, we can infer what the accusations must have been. He ran away, for one thing, as one of the accusations, because he did leave Thessalonica and the opponents would have maybe tried to make some hay with that. Second, he was insincere and a fraud. And of course, that his gospel was false, especially since he left so soon and apparently wasn't returning. So what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 is a defense of his past ministry, ranging from chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and his current absence. Why wasn't he there? So he's going to get into here the integrity of his visit, his worries while he's absent, and his determined intent to return to them. As in Acts, Paul defends himself aggressively, but not so much for himself as for the gospel and the church. For us, how often we defend ourselves just to defend ourselves instead of something larger. But there is a difference in Scripture between character and reputation. Character is who we are, but reputation matters as well. What people think of us, particularly when it's going to reflect poorly on the gospel and the church. And in cases like that, defending ourselves is a much easier case to make. And that's what Paul is doing here. So we start with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So verse 1 speaks of their previous missionary efforts at Thessalonica and that they had been successful. Remember back to chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, how Paul had talked about their changed lives as evidence of the effectiveness of the gospel. And it speaks to the truth of the gospel he had delivered. If his gospel was false, as his critics were probably accusing him, it's inconsistent with the success of their ministry and the changed lives that he talked about in the previous chapter. Verse 2 talks about all of this being despite the previous persecution in Philippi, and that's described in most of Acts 16. Later in verse 2, that he had been able to accomplish this with God's help and 
their courage. God had provided, but they had participated in it. Again, if we're thinking about a defense of his character, this speaks to his motives and his genuineness. If you're being persecuted and persevering despite that, what other motives can there be? This speaks to the authenticity of Paul, again, in contrast to whatever opposition and whatever the critics were saying. He also understates the extent to which he endured persecution. He does not go into detail. He was beaten, imprisoned, and stripped. We know this from 1 Corinthians 2.3 and 2 Corinthians 7.5. And I think there's an interesting application for us in this as well, to be careful with the extent of the details of the negative things that we are experiencing. There's a time to share that, and maybe particular individuals to share that with, but to just trumpet uh, the, the troubles and the pain we've had is not usually particularly fruitful. Another angle here is that if he got through all this because of God, then he doesn't get credit for it anyway. It's the Lord who gets credit for delivering him through his circumstances. This may also speak to his opponent's use of this as his quote-unquote criminal record, looking back at his past and accusing him of having trouble with the law and trying to use that to tear down his ministry. Again, all of this is part of Paul's defense. He's acting in good conscience. We see him use that language in Acts 23.1 and Acts 24.16. It could be based on the Thessalonians' testimony. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, you know. And that's a phrase he uses quite a bit in chapters 1 through 3. They can testify to what Paul is talking about. They can remember what he's talking about and use that to defend Paul and his gospel against these attacks. So now he goes on to describe his visit to them and defends its integrity in terms of four metaphors. Verses 3 and 4, that he was a steward of the word. Verses 5 through 8, he compares himself to a mother. Verses 9 through 12, to a father. And then verses 13 through 16, as a messenger of the gospel. So let's take the steward in verses 3 through 6 who has pure motives. Paul writes, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. So in verse 3, he defends against accusations of error or delusion, tricks or deceit, and impure motives or guile. On tricks and deceit, really cool passage here is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 2 through 4, where Paul writes, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul there is dealing with similar complaints, and there he turns it on its ear by saying, look, if people are arguing with you, it's because the gospel has been veiled to them, that the God of this age has blinded their minds, their unbelievers, and they are the true opponents of the gospel, not Paul who's receiving all of this critique. 
On the last phrase, impure motives and guile, Barclay notes that the Greek here for impure motives is often used for sexual immorality, as it is in chapter 4, verse 7, and he wonders if perhaps this is being hinted at by his critics that, for example, Paul is using the gospel as a pickup line, or maybe misinterpreting the holy kiss in chapter 5, verse 26, but in any case, the Greek word there is of interest. Now, in verse 5, he talks about no flattery or other deceit to cover greed. Again, he goes back to the examples of verse 3 and points forward, we'll see later, to the tent making that describes where he got his money from in verse 9. When he gets to verse 9 and talks about tent making, it's just not going to be consistent with the idea of using the gospel for greed. He's still working. And so it doesn't make any sense that greed is going to be a reasonable accusation. Now, this was a common problem in that day and continues in our day as well. Second Peter 2, 3, in talking of others, Peter writes, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. It's interesting to contrast flattery with gossip. The one is saying something to someone that you wouldn't say behind their backs and the other is saying something to someone that you wouldn't say in front of them. Neither is appropriate. Here the accusation is flattery. Notice also in verse 6, he again seems to be attacking the accusation of greed, where he says they could have been a burden financially, but were not. They had the opportunity, but didn't exercise it, and so again, the accusation of greed is ridiculous. In fact, later in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to go after those who do not work. And so it's they who are the ones that should be critiqued. It doesn't make any sense for Paul's opponents to critique him when in fact he's working. And that is in contrast to the Thessalonians who often were not working. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Different context, but similar words to 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So Paul is fine with preachers making money. That's not the issue. But in this context, where the Thessalonians often are not working, Paul is working. And so the accusation of greed is just ludicrous. Instead, Paul says, verse 4, we've been approved by God, we've been entrusted with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 18, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Wherever possible, Paul did not charge for the gospel exactly to avoid this sort of charge that was being leveled at him by his Thessalonian opponents. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. There's that word entrust again. Although Paul will not have opportunity in Thessalonica to develop disciples and disciple makers, that is the goal. And it's what the charge is to Timothy in that great verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, four generations that Paul is to instruct Timothy, who instructs reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. 
Now, what is this gospel that Paul's been talking about? Barclay calls it the liberty of the gospel and a gospel of joy. Paul says here in verse 4 that he's not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. And so people-pleasing is part of it. But many times people are not fond of a gospel of liberty or a gospel of joy. We saw this in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here in 1 Thessalonians 2.6, he says it's not about looking for praise from men. And so whatever the critique of the gospel was, whether it was the legalism of the Galatians or some other fault they found in him, Paul is, again, defending himself against these kind of critiques, saying he's not a people pleaser. He's preaching the gospel that has been entrusted to him by God, and he's been approved by God for this mission. A lot of courage here for Paul. We see it throughout these passages, and where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Spirit, of course, but in terms of his character and personality and his work, it comes from the love that he has from them, the hope that he has in the future in Jesus, and the mission of what God has given him. Those are the wellsprings of his courage. Stott describes all of this as a tremendous threefold claim. His message was true, his motives were pure, his methods were open. The what, why, and how of what he had said and done were on target. From this angle, his courage is coming from both the truthfulness of his message, he wouldn't do this for a lie, and the purity of his motives. Again, he wouldn't go through all that if he had false motives or a false message. And these continue to be stumbling blocks today. People think it's fake or the proponents are greedy, but in the face of persecution, that really doesn't make any sense. There is the difference between reality and its perception. There's a difference between reputation and character, but one of the advantages of persecution is that it refines those methods and reveals the character of the people engaged in sharing that gospel. The passage ends in the first half of verse 7 with a bit of a summary that he was like a child. And here he's speaking of the innocence of a child. And it also leads, ironically, to the next two metaphors, which are a mother and a father. And he keeps it all in the family. Maybe that's part of the point that Paul considers the Thessalonians part of his family. One last observation is that if you're never accused of the sort of things that Paul is, they said he was crazy, they said he had a gospel of liberty, they said he was trying to please men, and soon in the next passages they found him to be a bit of a dictator. If you're never accused of any of those things, then you're probably not taking the message in your ministry far enough. It reminds me of Paul when he's accused of cheap grace in Romans and Chuck Swindoll's observation that if you're never accused of preaching cheap grace, then you haven't preached grace strongly enough. I think there's a lesson for us here from Paul that when we get accused of things, in a way, that's a good thing. It reveals that we are pushing the awesomeness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of 1 Thessalonians 2 as Paul is starting to defend his ministry and his work against critics that we can only infer what the accusations were from the letter that Paul writes in response to those. We got up through the first half of verse 7 where Paul had focused on his motives and the attacks on his motives. Second half of verse 7 through 8, he describes himself like a mother 
And then chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, describes himself like a father, and that's what we're going to handle in this segment. Let me read verses 7 and 8. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So the tone and the approach are markedly different than what we saw in the previous section. Verses 5 and 6 in particular were fairly negative, and verses 7 and 8 are positive, not describing what he didn't do, but describing now what he did do with them in his ministry. Verses 7 and 8, he uses words like gentle and love and compares his love and the gentleness to a mother with a child. He also says that he was sharing not only the gospel, but their lives with them. Like a mother, he was giving, not the greed of taking that he had been accused of. And truth is both intellectual and experiential. And part of that is the mother's love in ministry. It's not just truths that are to be embraced, but a lifestyle that is to be emulated and absorbed from fellow Christians. And that's what he's done. Love is imparting knowledge and wisdom and then acting in love, serving as a model and expressing those truths through love in a way that is similar to what a mother does with a child. In the combination with verse 5, he's giving a picture of transparency and love, candor and compassion, truth and grace. And as an aside, it's wonderful that Paul can comfortably use a feminine metaphor for himself. Bottom line, Paul has a shepherd's heart and he's tough at times, but it's always delivered gently and tactfully. Reminds me of Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore a sinner gently. It has to be done, the work of restoration, but it needs to be done in a gentle way through the Spirit. And Paul, with his mother-child analogy, is making the case that that's how he had treated them. And of course, the Thessalonians receiving this would remember that, and it would help them defend in their minds and maybe publicly and vocally against the critics of Paul. So let's go on to verses 9 through 12. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now really, verses 9 and 10 are a general segue from the topic and metaphor of mother and father, which follows in 11 and 12. 9 and 10, he's talking really about both parents. The focus in verse 9 is on work. He uses words like toil and hardship, the word for toil he had used in chapter 1, verse 3, and also the phrase he had worked night and day in order not to be a burden. 1 Corinthians 9 is a great passage on this as Paul describes his attitude towards work. Two points of comparison worth making. Remember that the Thessalonians were struggling with work, that their eschatological views, their views of the end times had gotten them to believe they weren't supposed to put that much effort into work. And so Paul is contrasting his own efforts with that, making the point indirectly about what he's going to say very directly later on. And this is also a poke at the Greeks, the dominant culture who despised manual labor, imagining that it was only fit for slaves. So Paul is making a couple of other side points here in addition to setting up his description of himself as both a mother and his father. Verse 10, how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. 
with respect to God, neighbor, and public reputation, respectively. Holiness speaks mostly to our relationship with God, although it has outworkings in the world as well, of course. Neighbor uh, gets to righteousness, how we act with our neighbors, and then blameless gets to reputation. So character and reputation both matter. Again, we've seen that early in Thessalonians. He's also speaking of both integrity and transparency, and the need to confess is appropriate. Just because you're holy, righteous, and blameless doesn't mean you never sin. It's that when you sin, you're transparent and you confess as appropriate. First, I think it's interesting to consider, can we say this about ourselves? Is it even possible to describe ourselves in this way? So again, we have something from Paul that is a standard to be emulated. As we imitate Paul, as we imitate Christ, three barometers of that are holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness. I think a second question that follows quickly from there is, should we say such things about ourselves, even if they're true? And sometimes we downplay true attributes, and there's a time for that. There's a time not to talk about certain things, but Paul has been very open about getting people to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And the context, keep that in mind, Paul is making remarks here, not just to talk about himself, but to defend himself and his ministry. And then verses 11 and 12, he gets to the father analogy, the father-child relationship, using words like encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Whenever I see live lives worthy of God, I think of Ephesians 4.1, that great pivot verse where Paul in the second half of Ephesians opens by challenging them to live a life worthy of the calling they had received. Ray Stedman says here, from that basis of a faithful personal life, Paul exhorts, encourages, and challenges them. Now, the analogy to a father also has other implications. For example, to provide shelter and protection, to communicate wisdom through instruction, discipline, and by example. Again, how often Paul has talked about imitate, and he'll bring it up again here in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Fathers also provide leadership, strength, respect, and so on. So the picture of the father fully extends beyond what Paul has said here directly to a range of other things that he would hope he has lived out in his leadership and his ministry. Verse 12 ends with kingdom and glory, great reference to both the present and the future. John Stott says that they would live a life worthy of their dignity now and of their destiny at the end. So a few thoughts as we wrap up chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. The NIV study Bible refers to this as a ministry manual, sharing the gospel not from impure motives, greed, or people-pleasing, but with candor, love, courage, gentleness, hard work, and holiness. Ray Stedman says the Thessalonians needed a father's faithful concern, a mother's tender understanding words, a brother's readiness to stand by to the end, and above all, a realization of the resources they already possessed in the Spirit's inner strengthening. And I think we can also go back to chapter 1, verse 3, that great verse where Paul has said, we continually remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've really seen the same package here. Verses 7 and 8 was about care or love. Verses 9 and 10 was about work and to avoid burdening them and the integrity with which they were doing the work. And then verses 11 and 12 were about comfort and encouraging and urging toward the future, and that's hope. So we have love, work, and hope all mentioned here, just as they were in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul calls them to that, continually remembers them for that, is thankful for it, and then basically says, that's the way I've loved you. 
and you've been imitating me as I imitate Jesus. And so this is another good place to check ourselves. Are we one for three, two for three, or three for three in our ministry and our life? Do we have the love, the work, and the hope, the emphasis on the past, present, and future that Paul is describing here? May we love, work, and exhort like Paul did. Okay, it's time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. We're in 1 Thessalonians 2 right now. In the previous segments, we finished verses 1 through 12, where Paul, in defending his ministry and his character, compared himself to the innocence of a child, the love of a mother, the work, the exhortation and challenge of being a father. And he continues to defend his character in his ministry for four more verses. So that's where we will start, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So in verse 13, Paul again expresses continual thanks as he had done to open the letter back in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, this time expressing thanks that they received the word of God as the word of God, not men. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes there, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's a remarkable passage because he talks about the light of the gospel displayed through Christ, but it's in jars of clay, No big deal, because it's not about us anyway. It's the all-surpassing power of God, not us. And Paul's focus here is on the all-surpassing power of the Word of God. He goes on to say that the Word and the Spirit are at work in you who believe. Matthew Henry, talking about that first phrase, says, The words of men are frail and perishing like themselves, and sometimes false, foolish, and fickle. But God's Word is holy, wise, just, and faithful, and like its author, lives and abides forever. Let us accordingly receive and regard it. And that's what the Thessalonians had done. It was at work in those who believed. It was life-changing. And here is one of many examples where the word is self-referential to its own power, but hopefully you've experienced that, if not through my podcast, uh, other teaching and preaching, or your own study through the Holy Spirit, We give at least a lot of lip service to the power of the Word, but at least in my circles, a lot of times we encourage people to read the Bible by handing them a thick book with small font and then saying basically, hey, good luck to you. If we really believe in the power of the Word, we've got to do more than that. We've got to get people into small groups. We have to give them workable plans to read the Scriptures, and that's the reason for the book project, The Word Diet, is to help people with that. People who have not gotten into the Scriptures before, The Word Diet is a terrific opportunity for that to do so in small groups, do so in readable chunks. Do we really believe in the power of God's word that Paul talks about here, or is it mere lip service? 
In verse 14, he talks about the word imitator again, here of God's churches in Judea. So the idea of imitation again, something he's revisited from chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now this imitation is parallel rather than by conscious choice, since they did not know any of the Judean Christians. John Stott says all true churches which belong to God and live in Christ are bound on that account in spite of cultural differences to display a certain similarity to one another. They're not actually following the example of the Judean Christians because they know of them. They're doing it because they follow the Lord and Paul and other godly believers and therefore end up living a life that's parallel to the same thing in the Judeans. It's amazing if you've traveled to very different parts of the country or the world how believers have so much in common. Even though they're quite different, they live lives in parallel under the power of the Word through the Spirit. The parallels are much more similar than you would otherwise imagine. Imitations also in terms of the suffering at the hands of their own people, both Jew and Gentile, given the mixed composition of the church, But more likely here in the context, it's probably talking about the Gentiles. Stedman says here, this wonderful, life-changing word has another remarkable power, the power to arouse violent opposition, persecution, and martyrdom, since the gospel ignores human achievement, exposes human pride, and forgives blatant sinners. And Stedman could have added to that list, people have something to lose economically or in terms of power or the religion they have now faces different competition and they don't want that. And so oftentimes people's response to that, particularly in a world where might makes right, is to pull out the might and to mess with people. In verse 15, Paul gets into a history lesson to trace out those parallels, blaming the Jews for the death of Christ. Matthew 27, 25, Matthew writes, All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. And blaming the Jews also for the death of the prophets. Jesus himself did that. Matthew 23, verses 29 through 31. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Or Luke 13, 34, again, Jesus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who will kill the prophets and stone those sent to you? How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, when Paul refers to the Jews, it must be a subset here. Could be the leaders, could be those people who were in opposition to Jesus and the prophets at the time. But it must be a subset since Paul himself and the apostles and some even of his audience were Jewish. So he's not complaining about all the Jews here. He's complaining about those who are complicit in the death of Jesus and the prophets. More broadly, we know of Paul's Jewish patriotism, for example, in Romans 3, 1 and 2, but many other places as well, and his first emphasis on ministry to the Jews. He was called to the Gentiles, but ministered to the Jews. And in fact, the first place he would go when he went to a new city was to the synagogue. So it's his desire for overall ministry and his continuing efforts for first fruits at the synagogues was to emphasize the Jew and then the Gentile. But the result here, extending from his history lesson in verse 15, is the persecution of Christians. And think about the context of the letter here, that this is following tremendous and irrational persecutions by the Jews in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth. And it also provides his readers with an indirect reminder of why Paul had left Thessalonica in the first place. 
And in fact, Paul is quite the expert on such matters, both giving it in his pre-Christian days and receiving it as a Christian. The result of this is, in verses 15 and 16, to displease God, to be hostile to all men. And we're not sure exactly what that phrase means. It could be in general that they had trouble getting along with people, but at the least it was by keeping the offer of salvation and the gospel away from Gentiles and others. Hostility implies here pride, arrogance, and privilege. If they saw themselves as the chosen ones, then pride, arrogance, and hostility would be an unfortunate fruit of that. But the other irony here is that they were trying to prevent the Gentiles from receiving what they called a worthless gospel. Well, if it's worthless, why do you care so much? And this is probably too indirect, but it's also possible that Paul is taking a poke at Jewish religion more broadly, the use of ritual within the religion instead of the relationship with and the love for God and others that is at the pinnacle of Christianity. Finally, at the end of verse 16, Paul says that they are heaping up their sins to the limit. Jesus in Matthew 23, 32, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Or it's also reminiscent of God's word to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, 16, that in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And there's similar references in the prophets and in Revelation to heaping up sins as in an overflowing cup of God's wrath and iniquities and so on. So this idea of heaping up sins to the limit, overflowing, is something we see throughout Scripture. Here it results in the wrath of God. Again, getting toward the end of chapter 2 with an eschatological reference referring to the end of time. Now, what time frame is he talking about? Could be speaking in general terms. Could also refer to the recent past. There have been famine in Judea from the years 45 to 47. There have been the massacre of the Jews at Passover in the year 49. There have been the expulsion of the Jews from Rome in the year 50. Stott describes these as vivid recent events at minimum his readers would have understood and made that connection. Could be the near future, 70 AD, with the overturning and destruction of the temple and all that it represents. Or maybe it's also, or instead, a reference to the long-term capital E, capital T, end times, and the capital T tribulation at the end of time. As Stott says, however we interpret the last two sentences of verse 16, they are extremely solemn words. As we wrap up this section, one other thing to note is that Paul really has been talking about two key pastoral responsibilities. First, to the Bible, the gospel, the word of God. He was a steward of that back in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. And here in verses 13 through 16, he's a messenger of it. And his second responsibility is to the church, the people of God, as he described with the love of a mother in verses 5 through 8, the exhortations of a father in verses 9 through 12, to love, nurture, and teach them. And that's the theme that he's going to develop in the next section, which ranges from the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3. In all of this, it's a combination of truth and love. Stott says, truth is hard if it is not softened by love, and love is soft if it is not strengthened by the truth. We see here Paul defending both, going after both in good measure, in good balance, and it's a balance that is achieved through the Holy Spirit. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we finished 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 16, which is a section on Paul defending his past ministry from critics, where we have to infer what the criticisms were by Paul's various responses. And in it, he defines the gospel and the need to defend it, and as well as his reputation, his character, integrity, his love for them, uh, what they had seen in him, how they had imitated, there's a lot of fruit, and so on. So he provides an able defense of his past ministry. Now we move into a section starting in chapter 2, verse 17, and running through chapter 3, which explains his current absence. And you can imagine why this would be an issue, right? The Thessalonians want to see him. And again, back to the idea of critics, perhaps the critics were trying to make hay on the fact that Paul wasn't around. He'd left after a few weeks, he ran away, he's a criminal, on and on. You could imagine what the possibilities were, but he is defending that, talking about not just his ministry, but now hey, why he is not around and his desire to get back to them. So a key part of this section is his desire to hear a report which they have received from Timothy. And so that's where we pick things up in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And the language here underlines how much Paul didn't want to go in the first place and how badly he wanted to return. Let's look at the details. First of all, in verse 17, he refers to them as brothers. He did that also in chapter 2, verse 1. One of many times he does that in these letters. Torn away from you. This is not a voluntary departure. It was a matter of coercion. He was torn away for a short time, which implies his hope of returning to them soon. He was torn away in physical terms, but not in terms of thought. Out of sight does not mean out of mind. Still in verse 17, our intense longing. We made every effort to see you. I mean, that's a lot of stuff in one verse. Then verse 18 continues the same thing. We wanted to come to you, certainly, again and again. Ray Stedman says his letter overflows with the warmth of his heart and the depth of his love for his children in the faith. Again, he's answering an inferred criticism that Paul had deserted them. That's what we infer from what he responds with here, how badly he wants to be with them and dealing with the critics and their complaints. Verse 17, the word torn away is literally orphaned, and it says, if a parent were torn away from his child, again pointing back to the language earlier in chapter 2, the mother picture, allegory, metaphor in verses 5 through 8, and the picture of the father in verses 9 through 12. John Stott says, Paul felt and acted toward them as if they were his own children, which indeed they were. What is this extravagant language? It is the language of parents who are separated from their children, who miss them dreadfully, and are profoundly anxious when they have no recent news of them. Pastoral love is parental love. That is its quality. 
We'll see more of this as we move into chapter 3, but there's a terrific challenge here for pastors. Do you love your people in this way? Do you dreadfully miss them when they move away or you haven't seen them for a few weeks? So often in churches, people just disappear out the back door. And part of that is their fault, right? They're not getting involved. They come to large group worship. They're not involved in small groups. But if you run a small group and your people are missing, are you checking in on them? Are you following up each week? people aren't where they're supposed to be. We can't let people slip through the back doors of our small groups. Do we love our people like Paul does? Most broadly, this has application to community, commitment, and connection in the church, both what we are to pursue as individual believers and what leaders are supposed to seek out to develop in terms of the culture and to pursue in their sheep. Now, why all of this? Verses 19 and 20 Again, beautiful language here. The Thessalonians were Paul's glory and joy. Walvert and Zook say it filled his life with sunshine. They were also his hope. Think about parents with the hopes they have for their children. Again, the metaphor there is very helpful. And then finally, the phrasing, the crown in which we will glory in the presence of Christ, similar to what Paul writes in Philippians 4.1. Christ is our Lord Jesus when he comes, which is the eschatological reference at the end of this chapter. And it also underlines Paul's inability to come. The Lord Jesus will come. Paul wanted to come, but at least right now, under his own power, that is simply not possible. The reference to crown is a frequent symbol of heavenly reward, a wreath from the Olympic Games rather than a crown of royalty. There are two words for the Greek here, stephanos, which is the wreath, and diadem, which is the crown of royalty. And he speaks of the wreath of reward here from the Olympic Games. And the idea here is that Paul's greatest earthly and eternal rewards were from his ministry. Now, why hadn't Paul and his friends returned? The summary answer here in verse 18 is that Satan stopped us. Now, there are no details given, but most speculation is that this refers to the continuing Jewish opposition that Paul had faced in Thessalonica and in other places. It just did not make it feasible for him to return. Now, it might be better to consider that thesis one of the world system opposing Christianity, right? Rather than the devil, it's the world. But the devil likes to play with the world as well and team up with the world to cause trouble for God and his people. Paul describes the thorn in the flesh of 2 Corinthians 12.7 as a messenger of Satan. And so Paul is comfortable moving back and forth between these categories. There are other possibilities. From the text, we know there was a legal prohibition with severe financial penalties placed on Jason in Thessalonica in Acts 17.9. Or perhaps there's some event in the Corinthian church which is keeping Paul there. Maybe there's some serious sin or scandal which requires his attention in Corinth. More than keeping him from Thessalonica, he needs to remain in Corinth to do a particular work of ministry. One of the ironies of Paul talking about the devil here is that he had been blocked by the Spirit to get him to Thessalonica in the first place. That was in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. And so God had kept them from going various places so they would end up in Thessalonica. Now Satan is keeping them from returning. So why is Paul attributing cause and effect to God in the first case, but to Satan in the second case? Is it some sort of discernment that he has? Is it hindsight about cause and effect? Does he see it as a negative or a neutral cause? In any case, whatever this is, whatever Paul is thinking, we know by principle that God allows or causes everything. And for whatever reason, 
Paul ascribed the initial events that got him to Thessalonica as the cause of God, and here he sees it as something that God allows and does not overrule for his own purposes. We have the same problem in our own life. We try to interpret why events happen. Is it caused by the world, by sin nature of the devil, or some combination? Is this a test from God? Is it a temptation from the devil? On and on. Sometimes we probably have a pretty good sense of it, but at the end of the day, does it really matter that much? The bottom line is whether God causes it or allows it, our response is the same, to be faithful, obedient, and so on. A temptation aims at our failure, a test aims at our success, but in God's economy, everything's a test. Everything that God allows is meant to be a success in our life. Faith and obedience are always an option. We choose those no matter where the trouble comes from. All right, let's move into chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So in verse 1, despite their avid desire to go to Thessalonica, their repeated failure finally persuades Paul to stay in Athens. This is described in Acts 17, verses 14 and 15, and Acts 18, 5. But he does send Timothy, in verses 2 and 3 here, to Thessalonica. And this is a sacrifice for Paul. Notice the phrasing in verses 1 and 5, when he could stand it no longer. So again, underlining his passion to be with them and his love for them. He wants personal contact, but if not, Paul is willing to use prayer, pen, and here proxy by sending Timothy in his stead. His avid desire and then his actions indicate his love for them and his anxiety or worry about how things were going. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And surely Paul is praying nonstop about these young believers that he's gotten to minister to as part of his charge. But he's also going beyond mere prayer. He sends Timothy back to check on them. Verse 2, the strong description of Timothy implies a need for more credibility. He couldn't just send anyone. He had to send someone strong like Timothy. And again, he wants to send his best to empower and exhort them further. Verses 2 and 3, to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Stedman refers to this as exhorting them to steadiness. Now, Paul is especially worried that they would be unsettled by the difficulties and that it might impact their faith. Probably what he has in mind here is an Old Testament belief and a pagan superstition that would correlate blessings with obedience. And that certainly was not the case here. Paul is undergoing persecution as they were, not because they were causing trouble, but because they were being attacked by outsiders. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Mark 4.17, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution come because of the word, they quickly fall away. Jesus, again, in John 16.33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
It's interesting that in verses 3 and 4, he reminds them of the repeated prophecy which has now been fulfilled and thus is strangely encouraging that Paul and company would be persecuted. Matthew Henry says that being forewarned, they should be forearmed. It's a test and a confirmation of their faith. And then in particular, Paul says in verse 5 that he wanted to find out about their faith, especially since he was afraid that the tempter had tempted them and rendered Paul and company's efforts useless. Again, Paul's doing the best he can with limited resources. And at the end of the day, though, he's got to leave it up to God and the Spirit. He can't fix this. It's up to God and the Spirit to defend this and bolster it in his absence. He does what he can by sending Timothy. He writes these letters. But at the end of the day, it's up to God. And we get ourselves in similar positions. You think of sending kids off to college, and I'm not sure we disciple our kids very well very often, but we need to prepare them. And at the end of the day, you send them off and you hope for the best, you pray for the best. And that's all we can do at that point. Lord, help us to disciple better and then help us to let go when we can't make any sort of difference beyond encouragement and prayer. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.